0: You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. We thank you for the simple and profound testimony that Jesus has rescued me. Father, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that we would be encouraged, primarily because we see you for who you are, and in seeing you as our good and gracious Father, our faith, our trust in you would increase as we see your desire, your pleasure to provide for us all that we need. Speak to us through your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Kyle and Heidi and Charlie, for singing that chorus one more time while I found a way to get the microphone on. Um, It's always a good problem when there's a delay in getting your Uh, non-swim trunks back on to preach because you were in the tub for baptism. So I'll take that delay every Sunday. I don't know about you. Uh, Good morning. Welcome. Uh, You can open your Bibles if you have them to Luke chapter 12. If you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team will be coming around, can put a Bible in your hands. Luke chapter 12. Now as you're turning there, um, I don't know about you, but I feel as if the world just keeps getting more and more insane. Is that a fair statement? Maybe, maybe I'm over, uh, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit. But it seems like the world just is on a beeline to crazy land, and we're just along for the ride. And I know we need to be careful because um, we can be uh, contextual and chronological snobs. What I mean by that is we feel that our experience, our situation, our time in history, is is unprecedented. I hate that word, mostly because it's been so overused in the last two years. But, but the reality is, uh, even though we can over-realize our, our own circumstances, our own, our own uh, situations, um, in time and in space and in history, hardships and challenges have, have almost always existed, right? Since the fall of our first parents until now, we're bearing the effects of that. But, as I read and watch what's happening around me, and while there's lots of joy to be found, there seems to be, or at least it's emphasized more, a lot of things that would cause stress and anxiety and worry. There just are. And there's a tendency in me, and probably a little in you, to worry. I mean, if we're going to be honest, in a world that is, seems to be on the brink of war, how do we not worry. I mean, at least a little, right? And what's amazing to me, honestly, as I've been prepping this week, of all the days that we're opening in Luke's gospel, we're opening to this passage today in Luke chapter 12, which we had on the calendar to preach through long before any European country was going to go invade another one. We didn't cherry pick this passage this morning, but, in, but this morning, by God's sovereign and kind care, we are looking at a text where Jesus is telling us to not worry. So we're going to preach on not worrying and trusting God while war breaks out in Eastern Europe, right? God in His care has directed us to this passage at this time for our good. Because in our passage today, Jesus steps right into it, right into the reality of worry and anxiety and encourages His disciples to not Worry. To not be anxious. It's timely, a little. And here in Luke 12, Jesus peels back the layers. He, he exposes some of the things that we tend to treasure above Him, or the things that tend to fuel our worry. And we'll talk about those things a little, as Jesus does. But my hope this morning is not to berate us for worrying, but I want to cast a clear and compelling vision of God's goodness that he is our good father, that we'd be able to fix our minds and reset our hearts today on this significant truth, that God is good and that he will provide everything that we need. Because I think the cure, if there's a cure for for the joy-stealing anxiety and worry that we experience, it's not a diminishing of those things that concern us to say they're not important, like they're no big deal. I think the cure for what robs our joy is found in believing and hoping in something better, something more glorious. Namely, my grand hope for this morning in Luke 12 is this, that everyone who is in Christ Jesus, everyone who says, yes, I have faith in Jesus, that when you leave this place in a few minutes, you are more sure of the goodness of God than you were when you came in this morning. That you would know him more intimately as your good father. Not just generically God, but your father who is good. And that you would have confidence and hope that if you're a citizen of his kingdom, he has and he will provide everything that you need. Everything. That's my hope and my aim this morning. Not to make us feel guilty for our worries, but to proclaim hope in God's goodness so that our hearts are filled and caused to worship, and in that worship, that's what kills the worry, that in a world of worry, you would know that in Christ, you have a good father who knows exactly what you need and is pleased to provide from the abundance of his own kingdom. Let me say that again, that in Christ, you would know you have a good father who knows exactly what you need and is pleased to provide from the abundance of his own kingdom. So let's read our text. We're going to read verses 13. 13 through 34 of Luke chapter 12. You can read along in your Bibles and it'll be on the screen as well. Luke 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Be Mary. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you were not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is God's word for us this morning from Luke chapter 12. Worry, anxiety, concern, apprehension about danger. When Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, he is including everything. He's not saying... Don't be anxious about these things, but, but you can about these, right? He's including everything. And in this passage, he touches on things like money and food and clothing, some of the basic necessities of our lives, right? And the key, I think, to this text is found in verse 30. He says, all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He's not saying these things aren't important. They are, in fact, important. You need them. But but he's also saying that your Father, who's in heaven, he knows. He knows you need food and clothing and shelter. He knows you need provision. He knows. The distinction is this. Jesus says, seek the kingdom first, meaning primary, meaning ultimate, and then, and then all the rest that your Father already knows that you need, and then the rest will be added to you. So there's the the contrast that Jesus is drawing in this section of Scripture and in this parable that He tells. There's the seeking of stuff, there's the seeking of security, or there's seeking the kingdom. That's the contrast that Jesus seems to draw here, seeking stuff, seeking security, or seeking the kingdom. And again, it's not a matter of either or, it's a matter of priority. It's a matter of firsts. Look at verse 13. Jesus has just been teaching his disciples in the middle of a really large crowd. Many thousands of people, Luke says, they're trampling each other. And then someone in the crowd, verse 13, says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What a random question out of nowhere in the context. Some guy speaks up in the middle of... Jesus is talking about not being ashamed, Of of him before men, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the words to speak at the right time. And out of the blue, this guy asks Jesus for help with an inheritance problem with his brother. That just seems a little random to me. I don't know about you. And Jesus just responds, Who who am I? Who made me a judge or arbitrator over your problem? Essentially, he says, I'm not going to help you with that, which I kind of love that about Jesus. He answers, just not always in the way you're, you want, right? Now, we don't know a whole lot. We're not told really anything else about this situation. We don't know if this is a younger brother who wasn't getting what he thought was a fair share from an older brother who was in charge of maybe the, the family inheritance. We don't know if this brother had already squandered his portion, as we've heard in the parable of the, the, the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son who, who runs away and squanders his father's inheritance and then comes back needy and poor. We don't know if that's something like that's happening here. But the reality is, Jesus just isn't getting into the middle of that, and we don't know. Essentially, Jesus is saying, no, you, you can't use me like that to, to help solve this problem for you to, as a means to get what you want. Jesus is just not participating. But then, off that question, he turns to his disciples and probably anyone else who's listening. So the guy's probably still here, and he says this. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. How would you like to be the guy that becomes the object lesson? Right? Now, a simple definition of the word covet or covetousness is this. A strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or, so there's another possible uh, part of the definition, or to possess more things that other people have, all irrespective of need. So it's, it's, it's either, when Jesus says, be on guard against all covetousness, it's, it's be on guard against that innate desire to always want more and more and more and more, which is part of it, which we often talk about as greed, right? Or it can also mean to have an innate desire to want what someone else has. The grass is always greener there, and I want that. And Jesus is saying, be on, be on guard against that. I mean, one of the commandments that God gave Moses to give the people at Mount Sinai was thou shalt not covet. He was trying to help them be on guard against this strong desire to keep chasing after more and more or to always be wanting what others have. Why? Jesus tells them, why should you be on guard against covetousness? Verse 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is pressing on a disordered a uh, uh, desire here, where they're seeking stuff, just plain old stuff. Fill in the blank with whatever goes in the stuff bucket. Seeking stuff, and then Jesus tells this story, this parable um, about a wealthy farmer whose land was good. And we live in the Upper Midwest, so we understand how wealthy farmers work and poor farmers. But we get the whole farming analogy. So here's this. Here's the story Jesus tells. This guy. Has a, has, has a field, has fields that are producing tons of crops. So much so that his current barns and silos are not big enough to hold the, the bounty that he's bringing in. He, so he asks, what should I do? And his solution, because he doesn't know what to do with all of his crops, they're overflowing, his solution is to tear down the smaller barns and big, build bigger ones. Which seems kind of logical if you ask me, Right? Look at verse 19. Here's where he gets into trouble. Verse 19. So I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Did you catch that? So then I will say to my soul, He tells himself, you have ample goods. You have plenty of of, of stuff and supply. So relax. He's assuming that if he has enough stuff, then that will allow him to not have to worry. He can relax. But verse 20, God says to the man in this parable, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Essentially, you are now dead and standing before God, And all of the things you've prepared, the barns, the silos, whose are they going to be now? Because you don't take them with you, is essentially what he's saying. Whose will they be? And then Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's the danger. It's not in the bigger barn itself. The danger is saying, I will be happy and satisfied. I will finally have enough. I will finally be content. I will finally be able to relax or breathe, when I have blank. That the gaining of that thing, or that amount, or that whatever, will be the thing that will satisfy this need in my soul. The fool in this case is attempting to satisfy his soul with stuff. It, his, his eternal soul ultimately can't be satisfied with temporary things. And Jesus uses this word, treasure. You're going to want to hang on to that word treasure here. In this parable of the rich man here, he has laid up for himself an earthly treasure. He is rich according to the world. He is wealthy. But, Jesus cautions and says, but he is not rich toward God. You following what he's saying here? Following Jesus? How much joy and contentment is being robbed from us because we, like the guy in this parable, are preoccupied with stuff. That's the question I'm asking as I read this text. What joy, true contentment and joy is being robbed from me because I'm so preoccupied with something else? It's a hard question. It's a really hard question because a newer vehicle or a house with more bedrooms or adding that cool thing to a collection you have or, or spending some time or money on something that you enjoy or, or putting money into a project, including barns, if we're in the parable, they're not inherently bad things. They're not. The challenge is we have to ask ourselves, are we attempting to satisfy our souls with those things? And that's a question I can't answer just from looking at your bank account or looking at the, the, what you put on your calendar for your responsibilities for the week. Each of us has to listen to Jesus. Tell us, take care, Jake. Guard your heart against this desire of needing more. Each of us has to be on guard against a heart that is unsatisfied and always wanting more because sometimes our worry and our anxiety grow in us because we're seeking satisfaction in more and better stuff doesn't mean having more or better stuff is inherently bad. Hear me clearly on that. But Jesus is pressing on each of his disciples' hearts and each of ours to go, you need to take care, lovingly, check your heart on this. He continues, verse 22. Jesus says to his disciples, verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food in the body, more than clothing. He, he doesn't let his disciples get off and be like, well, but Jesus, we're pretty poor. I mean, it, does that really apply to us? And he's like, yeah, it does. Don't worry about things like food and shelter. I mean, these are, these are basic human survival needs. I don't know if anyone remembers uh, high school psychology Perhaps you've heard the name Abraham Maslow. I have a picture of the guy, I think. There he is. And uh, what's, what's affectionately referred to in Psychology 101 is Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Right? He was an American psychologist who wrote a paper published in 1943. And the title of that paper was A Theory of Human Motivation. And in it, his theory was that this hierarchy of needs, basic human survival at the bottom... Those things need to be met, food, water, clothes, shelter, and then safety needs like health and personal safety or financial security, and then relational needs like family and, and friends and community and affection in that way. And then humans are motivated by those things on the bottom first. Like if you don't meet those, they're not going to reach the pinnacle, which he calls like enlightenment or, 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 or spiritual transcendence, right? That if you don't meet the basic needs, like getting to the, the higher needs Is virtually impossible. Now, since 1943, his theory has been very heavily critiqued and criticized from all schools of both psychology and sociology and others. So I'm not endorsing Maslow or his pyramid scheme thing here. But I bring it up because I think there's something he gets absolutely right. Every one of us, old or young or rich or poor, we all understand that there are some basic things that everyone needs. If I were to ask a kid in the room, Anyone who's bold enough to give me an answer out loud in a group? What is something simple that every single person in the world needs? Anybody? Sleep. sleep. <laughs> Man, wouldn't it be great if we all got enough sleep? Right? Food. Oxygen. Water. Shelter of some kind. Right? If you're exposed to the elements, you need clothes. Especially if you live here, can I get an amen, right? You, you can't, these are basic human needs. And, and again, Jesus is not saying these things are insignificant. If food wasn't important, he wouldn't have gone out of his way to turn a few loaves and a few fish into a meal that would feed thousands. But Jesus is highlighting that as much as we need these basic things We as human beings are far more than what we eat or what we wear. That's what he's pressing on. Life, Jesus says, the whole of a person, the whole of who you are, is more than what you eat or what you put on. And Jesus uses two examples from creation. He talks about birds and flowers. And he says, consider them, think about them. I want you to discover something by looking at a raven or a lily. That's what Jesus says. Look at the ravens, he says. They don't plant seeds. They don't harvest crops. They don't have barns. And yet God feeds every single one of them. He says, look at the lilies in the field. They don't work. They don't labor. And look, he says, how beautiful they are. Not even King Solomon And all of his glory is as beautiful as a flower in the field. Even God even closed closed the grass. There's beauty in in a single green blade of grass, which we're all very hoping to see very soon. There's beauty there, and yet how insignificant it is that one day it's growing, and the next day you cut it up, and in this case, you bag it. In their case, it goes to the burn pile. And then Jesus says, of how much more value are you than birds or flowers or grass? You are far more valuable than the ravens. You are of far greater value than the lily in the field. And yet, and yet, he says, we feel the need to secure for ourselves what we need. As if God won't do it. We will toil and spin and worry and fret in hopes that we'll have enough. And right there between those two considerations of birds and flowers, Jesus is like, can you really add even an hour to your life by worrying about it? And he the answer is like, of course you can't. So why do you fret about everything else? Right? And then he says this, Oh, you of little faith. Which sometimes sounds a little bit like a, a shot, Right? Jesus just took a shot at me. I got little faith. I don't don't read it that way. Jesus is gently saying, it's okay that you've got a little. Don't worry. I got this. Oh, you of little, oh, me of little faith. So often, right? Verse 30, because all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. See, sometimes worry and anxiety grows in us because we're seeking security. We're trusting in our own ability to gather and to save, to feed and clothe ourselves. Instead, Jesus says in verse 31, instead of seeking these things, seeking comfort and satisfaction for your soul and stuff or security, instead, Jesus says, seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. This is where he flips the priorities. Jesus is essentially saying if you seek after stuff, if you seek after security, if that's the the main aim, you might actually get it temporarily, but you'll miss the kingdom. But if you seek his kingdom, you get the kingdom and then everything else too. So what does it mean to seek the kingdom? It's a big question. It's, We don't want to just leave it out in, like, theory, theological land. What does it actually mean to seek the kingdom? Here's at least part of it as I've wrestled through it this week. Part of it means we remember that we are more than just bodies and stomachs. That's hard to remember sometimes when we're hungry. That's hard to remember sometimes when there's actual risk, right, that we're experiencing, whether it's a medical diagnosis or or an outside threat. I think there's a reminder here that we are more than just bodies. We're made in the image and likeness of God. With immortal souls. We live not only here, but also with the thought of the life to come. Part of it means we seek the kingdom when we make our primary business kingdom business, and not merely earthly business. Here's what I mean by that. That we consider all of our actions and all of our words not only in terms of how they affect us here temporarily in this life. But consider everything in light of eternity, in light of what's to come. Not only for just ourselves, but of every woman and man that we uh, might come in contact with who are also made in the image and likeness of God. Jesus says it in Luke 9, we read it. In the last time we were in Luke, for what does it profit a man if he would gain the whole world? If he would gain everything that he could possibly gain and yet forfeit his soul. Part of seeking the kingdom means remembering that we are more than just flesh and bone. Instead, verse 31, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Now I want to be very clear about what I think Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. Especially as it relates to the ravens and the lilies. I don't think he's saying that we can just expect to sit on our hands and be lazy and uncaring about work and uncaring about providing for our family and uncaring about loving and serving our neighbor as God makes us able. Uncaring about seeking the welfare of others. We can't use this idea of seeking the kingdom to mean we do nothing Right? That doesn't make sense because sometimes God drops bread from heaven to fill our empty bellies. And sometimes God empowers our hands to work in a craft or a trade or a skill in the process of commerce. That skill is exchanged for dollars that we go to the store and buy bread to fill our empty bellies. God uses means so often. Because to seek first the kingdom is not a matter of either or. It's a matter of priority. uh, Anglican theologian J.C. Ryle, um, he says it this way. I thought it was very helpful. In short, he, the one who seeks first the kingdom, aims in all his daily life to put God first and the world, essentially everything else, second, to give second place to the things of the body and first place to the things of his soul. Unless you think that getting a hold of the kingdom then is some impossible task. Like, well, gee, that's a pretty high bar. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock. I love that. If there was any clue that Jesus wasn't berating us for having little faith, it's here in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, he says, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Remember when we started, one of the things I said is that I wanted to to help you fight for joy and contentment. And part of that is examining the things in our hearts. We have to do that work. What we're trusting in, what are we treasuring. There's a lot of good self-examination there that I think we should all do. But we can't miss this great truth that I think is actually the power that breaks the stronghold of joy-stealing worry and desire for other things in our lives, and that's this, that your God is a good Father. That your God is a good Father, and that He desires to give you the kingdom. It is His pleasure to give to you of His kingdom. What do I mean that He's our good Father now, I don't know what your relationship with your earthly father or dad was like. I, I do know that the way in which we experienced our own fathers can have, have an effect sometimes in the way we view God as father. I understand that. So just hear this. When, when Jesus says God, our, the father, is our father, here's what he means. He means that you are tenderly loved by God. Tenderly. That God does not receive you grudgingly or unwillingly. He's not just putting up with you. He rejoices over you. That He is pleased with you as His child because you were united to and hidden in Christ. That He calls you His child, His son or daughter in Christ, not an outsider. You've been brought as near as you can be from outcast to child. You've been adopted. God as our good Father means this, that he, is, he sees you as clean and washed because Jesus' blood has washed you clean. And when you see Him face to face, as Olivia said, when I see my Creator, He will greet us with joy. Now if God is this kind of Father to those who are in Christ Jesus how might that fill us with hope and diminish the worry we have here? If we see Him like that, that we are known and loved and welcomed and cared for. So God is your good Father. And He is pleased to give us the kingdom. Now the question is, how do I know then if my priorities are right? How do I test my own heart? There's some stuff that I like is it, should I spend some dollars on that? Should I not? How do I know? Well, if by the Holy Spirit we're seeking the kingdom first, then, Lord willing, I'm finding less and less satisfaction in those things and in my security. And so how do I know if that's happening in my heart? Well, Jesus keeps going. If you hadn't noticed, the passage continues. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 33, talking to his disciples who have already kind of expressed like, Yeah, I mean, they're the poor ones here. They're not the rich guys in the parable. Jesus says this, verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, there's a whole nother sermon in here about what God calls us to in self-sacrificial generosity, specifically sacrificing earthly comforts for the sake of others, particularly those in need around us. That God might be using the means of our hands to answer a prayer for God's provision from someone else. Think about that. When we pray, God, would you provide something we need? And God is pleased to provide it. How often does he use the means of someone else? Is, generosity this is how God tends to work in the world but at the bare minimum so we're not going to go into that because we don't have time for a whole other sermon today but at the bare minimum Jesus calls us to consider our comfortable situation in regards to what we have that in so many ways we are unfathomably embarrassingly wealthy and he says you can give that away because our treasure is connected to our hearts That's why Jesus brings up treasure. Our treasure is connected to our hearts. So when we're open-handed with the things that God gives us, when we're able to be generous and sacrificial with our time and our talent, the gifts He's given us with our, our tangible treasures, our money and our stuff... In in, in this way, when we're able to do that, we are providing money bags for ourselves that don't grow old. We are storing up treasure, Jesus says, in heaven rather than treasures on earth. I can give it away because I'm not worried that I'm going to have enough. And this is one way, just one way that we're participating in the kingdom of God. The line of thinking is this. I don't have to fret and hoard things the way the rest of the world does. So... The opposite of that, the way that I live then is willingly give away what God gives, trusting God to provide. And when we're doing, we're storing up heavenly treasures, which is our inheritance in the kingdom, which prompts the question, well, does that mean we can purchase the kingdom, right? Like if I give away enough stuff, a high enough percentage of my income, does that gain me something? In a sense, I mean, we live in a capitalist society, right? Sometimes generosity is for the tax write-off and not for the sake of generosity. You all just are doing your taxes right now. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not saying don't give them the contribution report. By all means, take the tax write-off. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a question, does that mean we can buy the kingdom? Can we purchase heavenly currency with earthly works? And the plain answer is no, because Jesus said in verse 32, it's your father's pleasure to give it to you. It's a gift. You can't buy this. You can't earn this. To quote uh, Pastor John Piper, he says the kingdom of God is a gift, not a purchase. I'm like, thanks John. It's given, not earned. But it is a gift to those who want it more than they want things it's a gift to those who seek it more than they seek things it's a gift to those who fear missing it the kingdom more than they fear not having earthly security it's a gift to those who trust the king more than the dollar we don't buy the kingdom when we scale down our material lives and sell things so that we can give them away we show the value of the kingdom more than things That's what Jesus, I think, is getting at here, which is why he closes in verse 34, which is where we'll close today. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the coffee mug line, right? That's the one that we put on a plaque and hang in our bathrooms. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me say it this way. Your heart displays what you treasure most. And as we talked about last week, your heart is connected to your hands. And so your heart and your hands display what you treasure most. My primary hope this morning, the thing I want us all to see with clear eyes, is that there is something far more powerful and comforting and satisfying than a fat bank account or a full pantry or a bigger house or even world peace. No matter the details of the things that do cause our hearts to worry, all the things that ultimately rob you of joy. Because in them, while we might find temporary comfort, we will not ultimately satisfy the deeper longings of our souls. and We will not find ultimate peace for our anxieties. That, oh, you of little faith, oh, me of little faith, that we would not seek satisfaction in our stuff and in our security, but we would be satisfied in the love of God for us in Jesus. That we are welcomed into his kingdom so much, and we see ourselves as residents, as participants, as citizens of his kingdom, so that we would not only live free of worry, but we would be far more generous and open handed because we know God's goodness and we trust his provision for us. I pray that we see Christ Jesus, or we see in Christ Jesus that we have a God who is our Father and he is good. That He knows your every need and He is pleased to provide for us as a gift out of the abundance of His kingdom. My prayer, Holy Spirit, would move in our hearts to treasure our good Father and to desire His kingdom more than our own. Can we pray? Father, we confess we are those of little faith. We're grateful that you don't come with condemnation. You come with fear not. Because you have purchased what we could not purchase. You have overcome what we could not overcome. You have rescued us from death. You have restored our brokenness. You are at work in us, renewing us and changing us and satisfying us. I pray that we would see with clear eyes the the wonder, the beauty, the truth that you love us, God, in Christ. That you are indeed our good Father and that you are pleased to provide for us out of the abundance of your kingdom. Work in us, Holy Spirit, as we come to the table that what would spill forth from our lips is worship. Worry-killing worship. Gratitude for all that you are and all that you've done in Christ for us. Pray in his name, amen.